So what's your favorite number? 14. It's the wrong answer. <laughs> oh, oh well. We'll allow you 14. What's your favorite number? It's only, it's not, it's, it's a bit subliminal, I know, but... <laughs> three, did I hear a three? It's the right answer. Great. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Faith, hope, and love. Threes. They, they sort of work, don't they? Uh, they roll off the tongue. They're easy to remember. They may not be your favorite number, but there it is. It's not just in the scriptures. There's others as well. Uh, who can forget Tony Blair saying education, 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 or Channel 4 saying location, location, location. And I don't know if you've come across uh, John Adair um, and something called action-centered leadership. It's a business model. He's an Englishman. Sir John Harvey Jones said of him, without doubt, one of the foremost thinkers of leadership in the world. And he developed what has become quite a famous three circles model in the 1960s. It's now one of the most recognizable, iconic symbols within management theory. And uh, it goes something like that. These three circles relate to uh, the importance of developing a healthy dynamic um, between task and team and individual. And uh, it's really a a process by which uh, if we attend to the needs of all three, um, then we've got something healthy going in terms, in, in his mind, in terms of business teams, um, but equally in terms of uh, what we want to look at today in terms of our homes, our households, um, our home groups, uh, our church, in the context of my work in terms of short-term teams. Um, I frequently use this model in training leaders for short-term mission team leadership and for training the team's themselves. Um, Developed in the 1960s, it might have been, but the scriptures are full of the same approach to task, team, and individual. So I want you to hold that in mind as we talk today, just in the context of those threes. We've got, for example, uh, Micah in the Old Testament, um, minor prophet, And the scripture that most of us love, if we know anything about Micah, we often go to chapter 6 and verses 6 to 8. We won't really expand on it too much today, but in essence he says, what does the Lord require of you? He was, as it were, speaking to himself in a moment of praise and worship to God. He'd lavishly offered God absolutely everything. And then, as it were, he came down to what he knew of his relationship with God. He said, Micah, I know what God requires. And it's like speaking to himself. What does the Lord require of you, Micah? A task to do justice. In relationship, in team, to love 
mercy or kindness in some versions. And for, for him as an individual, what does it mean? What does the Lord require of me? To walk humbly with my God. And in that one scripture, we've got, if you like, what to do, how to love, and how to walk. In the task or in our service, he says, let's do justice. As we team together in our networking, in our relationships, let's love kindness or mercy. I think we need to redeem the word kindness. It's become so, well, that's kind. It's a little word, but it has covenant depth in it in the scriptures. As an individual, in my walk with God, in my worship, let's walk humbly with our God. We see it in a story that I remember speaking about here already sometime in the last year or so. David and his chief and his mighty men, 2 Samuel 23, they knew all about task and team and the needs of the individual. If you don't know the story, bear with me. You may have to look it up some other time, 2 Samuel 23. But the chief men in the army at that time, in David's army, fulfilled amazing tasks. This is what it says of them. Some killed 800 men in battle, standing their ground against the Philistines till their hands grew tired and froze to the sword. Others killed huge Egyptians and others killed lions on a snowy day. Well, pretty, pretty impressive tasks. Uh, the chief men were called chief because of the Uh, because of the task they completed and the way they did it. But there are also a few who were called mighty men. And the mighty men also did valiant tasks in battle. But what they were really known for, and what we know them for many, many hundreds of years later, was their love for the whole relational team dynamic. For example, when David longed for water from the well of Bethlehem, These mighty men broke through the ranks of the Philistine army just to get David a glass of water. Just incredible act of kindness or of mercy expressed in the team that they were together. So they brought it back to David and then we look at David as an individual and the needs that he had as an individual. He was so overwhelmed and so humbled by this act of kindness that he actually refused to drink it but poured it out before the Lord as an act of worship and appreciation. So he knew what it was to walk humbly with God. And you see this interaction between task and team and individual all over the place. In this case, while the chief men were doing justice, the mighty men were loving kindness, and David was walking humbly with his God. But actually today we're going to concentrate on another threesome and that is Martha and Lazarus and Mary um, from John chapter 12. This is the family we're told that Jesus loved. If we're in any doubt, it says three times in John chapter 11, this is the family that Jesus loved. And he called Lazarus his friend. And again, friend, another covenant word that's so light in our own culture now, but drips with the heaviness of covenant. So obviously Jesus was really, really at home in this place. And I want to look at the story of the way they interacted together 
as a family, the way they tasked, they teamed, and they worked as individuals. And so we have it in that context as well. A little bit of background. Um, there are several overlapping stories um, in, in the Gospels that leave us unsure as to whether these are one and the same story or several stories. We've got things in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 where an unnamed woman was in Bethany at someone called Simon's house and she anointed Jesus' head. In Luke 7, we've got an unnamed woman who anointed Jesus' feet in an unknown town in Galilee at an earlier time, chronologically it seems, and still at the house of a Pharisee called Simon. But Simon recognised this woman as a sinner. In Luke 10, we've got Jesus visiting Martha and Mary. Martha distracted with all the preparations. We know that story. For those of you who've done uh, Kerry's Redeeming Eve course, today we're doing Redeeming Martha course uh, in a few minutes' time. But in John chapter 12 that Chris read to us, um, we've got Jesus visiting the home of Martha, Mary and Lazarus in Bethany, where Mary anointed Jesus' feet. Now some put in a case for saying these were the same story, same event. A few of those say that Martha must have therefore been the wife of Simon. Others say that there are actually two anointings that took place. And I say, for the purpose of this morning, it really doesn't matter. What matters for us this morning is why Jesus felt so at home with this family and how these special friends of Jesus interacted together as an integral unit. I use this scripture when training short-term mission teams and I ask, what does a good team look like? We look at the dynamic of task and team and individual and where to give the appropriate attention to each one of these at different times. So ultimately they all come out in some sort of um, healthy wholeness. But equally this morning we're asking, what does a healthy functioning family look like? What does an outward looking home group look like? What does a dynamic, vibrant, integrated local church actually look like? And we could do this from Acts 2 or Acts 4, some of those classic scriptures which talk about how life was in the New Testament after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But very simply, just going to have a look at it from the lives today of Martha, of Lazarus, and of Mary. Who, when they invited Jesus, what we see is a serving relating, lavishly worshipping community that honours Jesus and comfortably, naturally, lives out its life publicly, that is, in the face of critics, of crowds, and even of persecution. So let's imagine the scene. It's actually a very attractive environment, really good friends celebrating an amazing event together, a bit like the parties the beautiful people go to, apparently, and which the rest of us watch longingly on music videos and martini adverts, a place in which we are told we'd all like to be invited, to be accepted, to be gathered up, to be included. I want you to imagine Martha, sleeves rolled up, she's in the kitchen. Okay, she can get a bit wound up at times, 
And she remembers with a coy smile the day that Jesus had a word with her about that. But tonight she's in her element. She's been working away all day in order to prepare the very best food for the dinner party. And she's loved every minute of it. She'd love to be mingling with the guests too, but tonight Martha knows that she has a job to do. And despite the sacrifice, she joyfully accepts the responsibility. She brings through another plate of food, places it near to Lazarus, who is reclining at table with Jesus. He gets up, takes the plate, Lazarus this is, and begins meandering around the room, radiating out of his massive gratitude for the miracle of life, and at the same time listening attentively to his guests, expressing genuine interest in the comparatively mundane anecdotes of their week. More orange squash, anyone? Quiche? Cheesy dips? Give me a chance. It's a Christian party, isn't it? Imagine a latecomer hastily removing his coat, getting straight into a deep conversation and grabbing a fistful of food from the passing trail. Cheers, mate. Then he looks up in mid-sentence and sees Lazarus, utterly stunned, stops in his tracks. Blimey, Lazarus, I thought you were dead. Uh, Feeling any better now, mate? Just at this moment, an incident takes place that radically transforms the evening. Mary, spontaneously, shockingly prepared to break the culture for the greater good, takes half a litre of pure nard, costing the equivalent of a year's wages, kneels down and pours it over Jesus' feet. The room goes silent. The whole place instantly fills with the amazing fragrance of the perfume. You could cut the atmosphere with a knife. Undeterred and unhurried and with such grace, Mary then loosens her hair, stoops down even further and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Guests involuntarily place their hands over their mouths and faces totally shocked and embarrassed They exchanged panicked glances at one another, wondering just what on earth had got into the normally sweet and modest Mary. These were the flagrant and suggestive actions of a prostitute, and yet she seemed totally oblivious of the fuss she was causing. There was nowhere for the guests to hide. This was just so wrong, so uncool, such a cultural faux pas, so embarrassing. And it was Judas who broke the silence. He was angry. Why? Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? He blurted out. With deep, frustrated rage, he clasped his hands together behind his neck and shouted into the sky, It was worth a year's wages! He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Every one of the disciples had had their suspicions about Judas, but at this moment of time, that just didn't matter. They weren't thieves, but on this occasion, they actually all completely agreed with Judas. Look, there wasn't an Englishman among them, but even those Middle Eastern guys were just too cultured too conventional, 
too ordered, too functional to even dream of accepting that such a thing could be happening right before their eyes. Well, being in the kitchen, Martha didn't actually witness the incident, but came through to see why the strong aroma. And Lazarus? Well, he was just happy to be alive. He thought his youngest sister's gift was just brilliant. But of their guests, no one could even begin to cope with this ridiculous, overwhelmingly lavish act of celebratory worship that Mary had innocently poured onto the Son of God. No one that is except Jesus. There had been no hint of embarrassment from him. In fact, it was at that moment of time he decided that a little bit later that week he would wash his disciples' feet, knowing full well that once more they would react all over the place. He, just, he could just imagine it. You, you'll never wash my feet. <laughs> but here, tonight... At the dinner given in his honour, he comfortably received exactly the same treatment. Never mind that this was usually an extreme act of extreme sensuality, or that the guests to a man had just been blasted further outside their comfort zone than they'd ever been before. Jesus relaxed. Jesus received. Jesus accepted. Jesus enjoyed. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. He said to Judas, it was intended that she should save this perfume from the day of my, for the day of my burial. You always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I love the way this family functioned so holistically together. Task, team, and individual. Service relationship and intimacy. Martha served, Lazarus related, Mary worshipped. Or Martha worked, Lazarus networked, Mary celebrated. Martha worked like she didn't need the money, Lazarus loved like he'd never been hurt, and Mary danced like no one was watching. But actually, that's the final point. People were watching. This family, this home church, wasn't a clique. It wasn't a members-only club. It was not a gated community. It wasn't a party only for the beautiful people or for the socially acceptable. This family was prepared to live in the spotlight, welcoming into their home not just Jesus and a few close friends to celebrate with, but also cynics and thieves and critics and crowds and even persecutors. I'd like to have an integrated life like that. I'd like to be part of an integrated family like that. I'd like to be part of a local church like that. I'd like to be part of a local community like that, and this one takes a lot of faith I'd like to be part of a nation like that. I am asking a lot. Yeah, but let's ask a lot this morning, shall we? My wife, Bella, she's a great servant and a great worshipper. She's a bit of Martha and Mary all rolled into one. 
You ever seen a not weeping in worship? <laughs> I'm well into service and relationship, but I don't celebrate that well. I'm a bit of a grumpy old git, really. But I did just think that, didn't I? I didn't actually say it out loud. I heard this quote recently. We're often, so often caught up in our activities that we tend to worship our work and work at our play and play at our worship. But here we see a family getting the whole thing together, working together, serving, relating, worshipping, in comfortable, integral, natural, holistic interaction. They accepted one another. They gladly supported and released one another to be what God had built them to be. They let the air of life just blow through them. They took risks And they honoured Jesus as the centre of their universe. Through pain and rebuke, Martha had learned a new way of serving. No longer was she into obsessive serving, tensing everyone else up by insisting on doing everything herself and not letting anyone else help her, but then whinging and getting resentful when they don't. Jesus showed us the next day, or a few days later, what it takes to serve, John 13. He showed us that you have to settle something inside. You have to know some things for certain. John 13, verse 3, if you have it there, it's very simple. It says that he knew he'd come from God. This is when he was just about to wash the disciples' feet. He knew his genesis. He He knew knew where he'd come from and that just gave him the security and the stability that he wasn't fighting for self-image and for identification all the while. All the clobber that gets in the way of us learning how to serve one another. And because he knew his genesis, he knew his resources. He knew and we can know we belong to God He's wrapped us up and rescued us and started us again, breathed new life into us. Our resources are from God. We not need to be in some defensive panic that protects our own interests and serves ourselves. And then with the sort of last few percent of our lives, we might serve someone somewhere. Jesus knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going to. He knew he was going back to God, it says in John 13, 3. He knew his genesis and he knew his revelation. He knew he was going back to the Father. And that was his motivation. Same for us, the love of Christ controls us. So we don't have to be protective again, or uncertain really, about our future. We don't have to be confused about what we want to do and the image we want to portray. We knew where we'd come from, we know where we're going. And Jesus knew what the Father had placed in his hands. He knew his calling, his assignment. And therefore he knew his priorities. Probably isn't the priority of many people. A night night before they're going to be betrayed and die for the sins of the whole world. To wash the disciples' feet. I think if there's any event that's coming up in the future that I'm really worried about, I want to be very protective about my own interest. Don't want that phone call, don't want that interruption, don't want that disturbance. But Jesus knew his assignment, 
Therefore he knew his priorities. It gave him the space and the grace to lay aside and to serve. And so he loved them to the end by stripping himself of his clothes, but also of his pride, of his, you know, of his sense of needing to be served, etc., by serving the disciples individually and by leaving us an example. That's the story of John 13. But I'm just relating that to suggest to you that Martha had learned her lessons. So let's have a redeeming Martha day. And as for Lazarus, he wasn't into an introverted, egoist model of networking for personal gain. He knew how to relate, to reach out, to befriend, to dialogue. Or maybe you think reclining at table was a cosy little number for Lazarus. Typical bloke. But if we read verse 10 and 11 of John 12 again, we see many came to see Lazarus, so the chief priests made plans to kill him as well as Jesus, for on account of Lazarus, many were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The way Lazarus lived brought many to Jesus. We need men who have been raised up to new life and who are grateful for it, who are comfortable with themselves and who they are, who don't lose themselves in practical service alone, but who know how to relate openly, confidently, and humbly to others, to men and to women, and who know how to lead others to Christ. And as for Mary, well, Mary, this was far from mindless emotionalism and flamboyant exhibitionism. This was sheer worship, a celebration in spirit, And in truth, was she out of her mind? Well, yes, actually. Paul says to the Corinthian church, if we are of sound mind, it's for you, but if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Sounds like a great praise and teaching meeting to me. I think, though, almost every one of us in this room would have struggled with the extreme extent of Mary's generous worship, not because we're thieves, but just because we are so functional. And we hide behind this functionality, justifying it with some muttered, principled conclusions that the poor could have benefited more. But our principles can be so hypocritical, unless, of course, you have recently given a year's worth of your wages to the poor. So I think we'd better learn to cope with Mary's generosity, either now or when we stand before his throne. Where, according to what I read in the book of Revelation, worship is a little more than the singing of a few songs on a Sunday morning. Just a snapshot, Revelation chapter 5, then I saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns, seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open up its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that's in them, singing, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power, forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down, and worshipped. even makes a year's worth of perfume look a bit dull, doesn't it? So I say to you again, let's work like we don't need the money, let's love like we've never been hurt, and let's dance like no one's watching. I wonder at lunchtime today, if you're sharing lunch with people today in a household, have a chat together about your household. How are you doing with the serving Relating and celebrating or worshipping? What are your household strengths and weaknesses? How can you maximise the strengths and overcome the weaknesses? What can be done to make your household a place that Jesus loves to visit? Perhaps do the same with your home group. How are you doing with serving, relating and celebrating? What are our home group strengths and weaknesses? How can we maximise the strengths and overcome the weaknesses? What can be done to make our home group a place that Jesus loves to visit? And maybe we can have that debate as a church. How are we doing? With the task, the team and the individual, the serving, the relating and the celebrating. Where are our church's strengths and weaknesses? How can we maximise the strengths, overcome the weaknesses? What can be done? to make our church a place that Jesus loves to visit. Claire.